This episode of Obscure Ball contains depictions of violence and death that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Even before all hell broke loose, the tension at the polo grounds on September 23, 1908 was palpable. Along with the Pittsburgh Pirates, the New York Giants and Chicago Cubs were in the middle of a three-team pennant race and the right to represent the National League in the World Series. With only about two weeks left in the season, each game became more and more crucial, and all three teams needed any edge they could get. So when the Cubs and Giants faced off in New York that day, everybody on both teams, and the some 20,000 fans in attendance, knew that the stakes were high. By the bottom of the ninth inning, with the game tied at one, two outs, and runners on the corners, the stakes were even higher. Moments earlier, a 19-year-old rookie named Fred Merkel kept the Giants' hopes alive when he sharply singled down the right field line, advancing Moose McCormick to third base. That brought Giants shortstop Al Bridwell to the plate. He just needed a hit, and the game would be over. So when he did get a hit to center field, the stadium erupted. Fans poured onto the field to celebrate what they assumed was a game-winning base hit. Let's pause here for a moment and take stock of the situation. If this were a movie, it'd probably be a freeze frame. This moment was not only crucial in the game that day, it impacted the whole season. It set off a chain of events that nearly tore the city of New York apart. There'd be riots, arson, bribery, organized crime, forbidden romance, and before all was said and done, there'd be more than one casualty. That story is next. Alexander's Wood Emporium is a custom wood shop based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom wood products like tables, shelves, cutting boards, serving trays. I mean, you name it. Find them online at alexanderswoodemporium.com. Now, on to this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called Take Nothing for Granted. Fred Merkel made one serious mistake. Any schoolboy would have run to second base. But Merkel gave way to the ecstasies of real baseball delight and started to the clubhouse to talk it over. The New York Star and Advisor, September 26th, 1908. In 1908, not many people knew about Rule 59 in baseball, which stated that if a base runner reaches home on or during a play in which the third man be forced out or be put out before reaching first base, a run shall not count. Put another more simple way, runners can't score after a force out ends the inning. Today, it's common knowledge among baseball fans, and for anyone who ever played as early as Little League, you're always taught to run it out. That's because Rule 59 played a big role in the events that unfolded that fall. Oddly enough, the impetus for all of this might have been a section in the Chicago Tribune called Inquisitive Fans, where readers can submit questions to the sports editor and if it's a good enough question, the editor will reply. So in July of 1908, a beer leaguer named Joseph Rupp wrote in to settle a dispute during one of his amateur games. He asked about a base runner leaving early in the bottom of the ninth inning, resulting in a disputed force out. The Tribune responded with a simple one-line response. Run cannot score when third out is made before reaching first base. The exact impact this exchange had on professional baseball has been debated for some time, and can't really be proven one way or the other. But the general consensus is that someone from the Cubs must have read that Sunday issue of the Chicago Tribune. Many people think that someone was Cubs second baseman Johnny Evers. Along with shortstop Joe Tinker, Evers was part of one of the greatest double play combos in baseball history, and is known to have had an academic-like knowledge of the game. Now again, it's just a theory, but the timeline matches up with events we know happen for a fact. Rupp wrote into the Tribune in July of 1908. That's a fact. A time when Evers was known to be nursing an injury and would have had extra time on his hands to do something like read the Sunday paper. Another provable fact is that Rule 59 came up during a September 4th game between the Cubs and Pirates. With the score tied at zero in the bottom of the 10th inning and two outs, 
a scenario very similar to what Rupp described happened. There was a runner on third base when Pittsburgh right fielder Owen Chief Wilson slapped a single to right field, and the game was over. The run scored. Except Warren Gill, the Pirates' first baseman, was on first when the hit happened, never advanced. He just started celebrating with his teammates. I mean, this is a pennant race after all. Evers, who either studied the rulebook carefully, or happened to read the Sunday edition of the Chicago Tribune, tried to tag him out at second. It would have been a force out had the rule been correctly applied. The game would have gone into the 11th inning. But an umpire named Hanko Day was the only umpire working that game and never saw it. So the ruling stood. The Pirates won, and the Cubs were annoyed, to put it mildly. Now, in all fairness to Warren Gill, what he did wasn't that unusual for the time. The, the, the most salient thing to me is the application of the rule, which had just you know been ignored, but the thing is nobody had pushed it before. Other than- Stu Thornley has written quite a bit about the dead ball era. Well, he's written a lot of things in general. He's the author of more than a dozen books, mostly about baseball and basketball history, plus a novel, and is a frequent contributor to the Society for American Baseball Research. He's won awards for his writing and research, and, most importantly for our purposes, has studied the 1908 pennant race at length. As he points out, Rule 59 had never really been implemented, but it still existed, and O'Day knew the rule. But again, he never saw what Gill did. It, it wasn't like there was a precedent set. The, the, the lone umpire that game said, I just didn't see it. I can't call it. But it wasn't saying like, no, we're not, you know, you're getting too picky. We're not, we're not going to call him out for that. Come on. He's, you know, it's just a formality that he didn't take. We'll ignore that. Hank O'Day understood the rules. And presumably if he had seen what had happened exactly in Pittsburgh on September 4th, he would have called Warren Gill out. They would have said the run doesn't count. They, they'd go to the 11th inning. But Day's explanation is really important here. He never said that Evers was wrong or that he wouldn't implement the rule. He simply said he didn't see it, leaving any logical person to believe that should he see something similar in the future, he'd correctly implement the rule. So you might say it was the perfect storm on September 23rd when, again, the Cubs were playing And again, O'Day was the umpire. This time, though, he had help. Fellow umpire Bob Emsly was working the bases. But the extra help didn't stop the chaos that would later unfold. That brings us back to this moment in the bottom of the ninth inning. Arguably, the most infamous half inning ever to be played in the history of baseball. Al Bridwell's single in the center field should have won the game. And for a few minutes... That appeared to be the case. Fans poured out from the stands, which, given how drunk and rowdy many of them were, could be an unpredictable situation. So the players for both teams rushed for their clubhouses beyond the center field fence. That included Merkel, who never touched second base. Evers saw this. So did Hank O'Day. And when Evers tagged second base with the baseball, O'Day, remembering what happened on September 4th, had no choice but to call Merkel out. It's a force play, and we all know that no run can score when the third out of an inning is made on a force play. The incident is known among baseball historians as Merkel's boner. Back then, boner meant a boneheaded or stupid mistake. In today's vernacular, it means something else entirely. That aside, Fred Merkel was panned by the media and baseball fans after the game. He earned the nickname Bonehead and Ivory Pate. But upon further examination, it's hard to blame this solely on Merkel. Up until this very moment, Rule 59 was a technicality that umpires rarely, if ever, enforced. A 19-year-old rookie making his first career start can hardly be blamed for not reading every section of the rulebook. But there's another odd wrinkle to this tale that's never really been worked out. With thousands of people now on the playing field, No one knows which ball Evers actually ended up with, or how he ended up with it. There are as many versions of what happened on that play as there are people who have written about it. Pretty much everybody has something else to say. If this all seems like good material for a novel, Floyd Sullivan, who you just heard, beat us to the punch. Floyd is the author of Called Out, a novel of baseball in America in 1908. 
We'll touch more on the actual novel later, but Floyd's written a lot about Chicago baseball in general. He's also the author of the book Waiting for the Cubs and has researched the Merkel incident and the events that followed in some detail. While Called Out is fictional, it's obviously based on true events, including the controversy over what happened to the game ball, which to this day is still technically a cold case. We know for a fact that someone threw Evers a baseball and that he tagged second base. Why else did O'Day rule the way he did? But that's about all anyone can agree on, even a century and change later. Like Floyd said, there were dozens of different accounts on what exactly happened after Bridwell singled to center field. Evers went to his grave proclaiming that center fielder Solly Hoffman fielded the ball cleanly and threw it to second base where he caught it. He signed a written affidavit saying as much. On the other hand, Fred Merkel also said that he actually touched second base. But there's not much evidence to back up either version of events. And years later, Merkel actually copped to the fact that he never touched second. Various retellings of the incident suggest that Joe McGinnity, a pitcher for the Giants who was also coaching first base that day, made his way onto the field and actually intercepted the ball when it was thrown from the outfield. Keep in mind, the team on offense can't intercept the baseball. That's totally against the rules. But McGinnity apparently didn't care. He intercepted the ball and hurled it into a sea of people, where multiple eyewitnesses claimed a man with a brown bowler hat retrieved it. One of these eyewitnesses was Rube Crow, a seldom-used relief pitcher for the Cubs. He claims that they chased this guy down, and they got, and the way that they got him to drop the ball was to punch his hat over his eyes. And when he tried to free his hat, he dropped the ball, and they got that ball and relayed it into Tinker, and Tinker threw it to Evers, and that was it. And O'Day was watching the whole thing. And it's O'Day's account, written on the evening of September 23rd, 1908, hours after the game, that is the most telling. Merkel did not run the ball out. He started toward second base, but on getting halfway there, he turned and ran down the field toward the clubhouse. The ball was fielded into second base for a Chicago man to make the play when McGinnity ran from the coacher's box out onto the field to second base and interfered with the play being made. M. Sly, who said he did not watch Merkel, asked me if Merkel touched second base. I said he did not. Then M. Sly called Merkel out. I would not allow McCormick's run to score. The game at the end of the ninth inning was 1-1. One one. The people ran out on the field. I did not ask to have the field cleared as it was too dark to continue play. So according to a day's report, it was the interference by McGinnity and the fans rushing the field and the sun setting that doomed Merkel. Not the force out. None of that was clear in the moment, though. When the Giants, in particular manager John McGraw, realized what was happening that the game would end in a tie and not a Giants win, things turned ugly. The fans became so restless that according to a story from the New York Times, police had to rush onto the field to keep the peace. Luckily, no one got seriously hurt. This time. But the saga was far from over. Stu Thornley has coined a term he calls showdown games. I'll let him explain what that means. Two teams meeting and for one game for either going home or moving on, uh, like the seventh game of the World Series. You know, it's an all or nothing type of game. October 8th, 1908 meets the criteria of a showdown game. The Giants and Cubs would play at the polo grounds with the winner moving on to the World Series and the loser going home. All or nothing. As extraordinary of a day as October 8th was, and believe me when I say it was extraordinary, the events leading up to that day were pretty amazing as well. On September 23rd, Hank O'Day, Bob Emsley, and the Chicago players managed to escape the unruly crowd at the polo grounds. Aside from some fist fights, no one was too badly injured this time around. But another type of fight was just beginning. Neither team was happy with the outcome. The Giants believed they won the game 2-1. to one. McCormick's run should have counted, and all this business with Evers and O'Day was just a technicality. Likewise, the Cubs argued that Merkel was out, and the Giants should have forfeited the game since it was their fans who stormed onto the playing field. In the end, both teams pled their case to the National League. 
That forced an unlikely character to take center stage in this whole saga. Harry Pulliam was the president of the National League at the time, and he was one of the people whose life was changed by this event. He's also the protagonist of Floyd's book, Called Out. Most people would say that the Merkel story is probably the most tragic element of this, but to me it was by far Harry Pulliam. And he, he started interesting me in that his story reminded me very much of the story of Tchaikovsky. Peter Tchaikovsky, arguably one of the greatest composers of the 19th century, is an interesting comparison to a lifelong baseball man. But once you dig beyond the surface, there are some similarities between these two men that are striking. Tchaikovsky differed from other Russian composers at the time by combining technical proficiency with a degree of professionalism, and was inspired, as music historian Francis May put it, to reach beyond Russia with his music. The way he saw it, his music belonged to the world. He wanted everyone to enjoy it. Pulliam, himself a poet and lover of the arts, saw baseball as a beautiful game that could be loved and appreciated by Americans from all walks of life, a viewpoint that stood in direct opposition to the culture of the game at the time. It was uh, an era of rough-and-tumble baseball, a lot of connections to gamblers, a lot of fighting, kicking, they called it at the time, a lot of disrespect for umpires, and uh, you know these were just rough guys who fought each other. The Cubs of that year were as quick to fight each other as they were to fight people on the other team. It was a brawling kind of 19th century game that I, I think at one point I, com- I compared to Lower East Side rat fight. And Pulliam saw the beauty in the game, the elegance in the game, and worked to maximize that aspect of the game, that you had to be an athlete. You had to excel at certain things that in- involved both a high level of athletic skill, but also a strong element of elegance and almost artistry. And you know, he was—he he wrote poetry and he was interested in the arts. And uh, so he saw that part of baseball, the beauty of baseball. And so when he when he was put in a position of power, he tried to apply those standards to the game, and essentially pull the game kicking and screaming out of the 19th century and into the 20th century. He wanted to legitimize it, a uh, pastime for all ages, both sexes. He didn't want it to be just the bastion of gamblers, fighters, and, and rowdies. Another trait both Pulliam and Tchaikovsky shared was the question about their sexuality. In retrospect, it's largely agreed that both men were gay. In theory, that shouldn't matter. But of course, social conventions being what they were at the time, they both were forced to hide their sexuality in public. This likely played a role in another commonality, which was their bouts with depression. In the case of Tchaikovsky, it probably cost him his life. His official cause of death, cholera, is widely disputed by historians, many of whom speculate he killed himself. With Harry Pulliam, there'd be no doubt. Pulliam was hired as the National League president in 1902, when he was only 32 years old. At the time, he was known as a brilliant baseball mind, who had at various times worked as a journalist, an executive who worked for the Louisville Colonels, and eventually the Pittsburgh Pirates. He even found time to run for public office, and briefly served in the Kentucky House of Representatives as a Democrat, where he managed to introduce legislation to protect Redbirds. One of his famous quotes, Take nothing for granted in baseball is used to this day and was weirdly prophetic as 1908 played out. Pulliam was good at his job. He negotiated an alliance with the American League at a time when the two leagues were feuding, which led to the first ever World Series. He also started the first ever Hall of Fame in baseball, and his business acumen brought a degree of professionalism and legitimacy that the game had always lacked. In short, he made baseball better. And before September 23, 1908, Pulliam was a reasonably well-liked person in baseball. While he clearly didn't fit in with the rich business magnates who owned the teams or the heavy-drinking, brawling men who played the game, he was respected for his devotion to the game, his fair rulings, and his support of his umpires. Oddly enough, it was those very traits that would pit him against some powerful forces in baseball after the Merkel situation. Namely, 
one of the most shrewd men professional baseball ever knew, John T. Brush, owner of the New York Giants. He was a businessman, and um, he bought the Giants, I, th- I think, strictly as a business investment. And he wanted maximum return on his investment. There, there are a lot of examples of uh, John T. Brush um, making decisions or, or working pretty much exclusively to maximize his profits. Brush and Giants manager John McGraw, who epitomized the barbarism of the 19th century and early 20th century baseball, were two of the people who didn't care for Pulliam. They'd become increasingly convinced over the years that Pulliam ruled against them in order to help the Pirates, the club he previously worked for. The accusation itself is so juvenile and unsupported that it's hardly worth bringing up. But in 1908, when he upheld O'Day's ruling from the September 23rd game, the game that ended in a 1-1 tie and not a Giants 2-1 victory, they were certain of it. Their view was, of course, biased, and the Cubs were equally convinced that he was screwing them over. Things got even dicier on October 2nd, when Pulliam decreed that the game would have to be replayed on October 8th if it would have had any bearing on the outcome of the pennant race, something that by no means was guaranteed. At that point, Pittsburgh was in first place by a game and a half at 97-55, and 55, while the Cubs and Giants were now tied for second at 95-54 and 54 and 96-55 and 55 respectively. If the Pirates could just hang on, the Merkel game wouldn't actually matter. But that didn't happen. Sunday, October 4th, was the final day of the season for the Pirates, who still led the Cubs by half a game. A win would guarantee their place in the World Series. However, when the two teams faced off in Chicago, the Cubs won 5-2 behind a complete game effort by Mordecai Three-Finger Brown. That put Chicago in first place alone and effectively eliminated the Pirates. Because of scheduling irregularities, the Giants still had three games left to play. Trailing the Cubs by a game and a half, the scenario was pretty straightforward. They had to win all three remaining games against the Boston Dubs, or they would be eliminated. Again, this is another opportunity for the Merkel game to not really be a factor. At this point, it could still only be a footnote in the annals of baseball history. With the season on the line, the Giants crushed the Doves in a three-game series at the Polo Grounds between October 5th and 7th. 8-1, 4-1, and 7-2. The games weren't even close. That put the Giants' record at 98-55. and The Cubs' record, also 98-55. and That meant the Merkle game would be replayed on October 8th. And it would be, as Stu Thornley puts it, a showdown game. Before we get to that, though, it's worth briefly visiting the other pennant race that was brewing in the American League. Many baseball historians have reached the conclusion that for all the hoopla around the National League pennant race that year, the race in the American League was the better of the two. Here's Stu Thornley again. Probably what gives the distinction to the National League one is the bizarre nature, the the, the whole Merkel incident. Uh, If that had just happened in some other way or you didn't have that. Uh, I think the intensity and the attention and the historical recollections of it wouldn't, wouldn't be as great. But now you look back well more than 100 years and you talk about 1908, what automatically comes to mind is the National League race. And that's because of the Miracle of Boner. Essentially, this was another three-team race between the Detroit Tigers, the Chicago White Sox, and the Cleveland Naps while the St. Louis Browns weren't far behind in fourth. With less than a week left in the season, all three teams, and even the Browns, had a shot. My friend David Gunn, who helps me with research from time to time, dug into the stats a bit. Uh, The numbers are pretty interesting. Uh, So the White Sox arguably were the worst of the three teams based on a couple factors. So their record was not as good. So they were last placed in the division with home runs, they only had three home runs, uh, RBIs, total bases, slugging percentage, and next to last in batting average. However, what was what helped Chicago was actually their pitching. Uh, they had the best pitching out of the three teams. If you look at the numbers of strikeouts and, and all the uh, pitching stats, they actually were 
were the best team. Back to hitting, Cleveland was in the middle, and Detroit was near the top. The 1908 White Sox would in fact participate in one of baseball's all-time great pitching duels on October 2nd. Ed Walsh, one of four guys on the team named Ed, was contending for his 40th, his 40th 4-0 win of the season and tossed eight innings of one-hit baseball, allowing just one run on four hits while collecting an impressive 15 strikeouts. His opponent, Eddie Joss, however, happened to throw a no-hitter and Cleveland won one to nothing. Not only was it one of the greatest pitching duels ever, but it was a huge win for Cleveland. It put them within a half a game of Detroit. The five games left on their schedule were plenty to overtake the Tigers, led by none other than Ty Cobb. Except they lost to Chicago the next day, and tied with the Browns the day after that before splitting a doubleheader with the Browns on October 5th. They finished the season with a 5-1 win against St. Louis and a record of 90-64. and tied for the most wins in the American League. But Detroit and the White Sox were still in the mix and faced off for a dramatic three-game series to end the season. The Sox took the first two games, which set up an odd and confusing dynamic on October 6th. The Tigers were in first by half a game at 89-63 to Chicago's 88-63. Cleveland, having played more games, finished at 90-64 effectively eliminating them from winning the pennant. So the game between the White Sox and Tigers on October 6th was, as Stu Thornley puts it, another showdown game. The winner would go to the World Series. It was never close. Detroit plated four runs in the top of the first inning and went on to win 7 to nothing and clinched the American League pennant. Chicago finished in third at 88-64, and, and Cleveland finished 90-64, and 64, a half game behind the Tigers. You could argue that, in a sense, the Tigers won the pennant partially due to a technicality. The American League, clearly operating under different rules, didn't force the teams to make up games that ended in ties. In the case of the Tigers, on September 24th, one day after Merkel's infamous boner, had a game called off in the 10th inning against the Philadelphia Athletics. Likely, the game spilled into the evening, and with no stadium lights, it was too dark to play. The game was never made up, and had the Tigers lost that game, they would have finished at 90-64, and tied with Cleveland. Instead, by virtue of having played a full schedule, the Naps could only watch helplessly as the Tigers and White Sox battled it out in a showdown game on October 6th. Detroit claimed the AL pennant, and now awaited the result of the October 8th game to decide their opponent. It's not really clear why American League President Van Johnson opted not to force Detroit and Philadelphia to play a makeup game. His decision was pretty unpopular in Cleveland, to be sure, but that controversy was overshadowed by events in the National League. It's a good example of how you have the president of each league making opposite rulings and both receiving a lot of criticism for their respective decision. Their 7-2 win over the Doves on October 7th put the Giants at a record of 98-55, or tied with the Cubs for first place, who had neutralized the Pirates by beating them 5-2 on October 4th. Thus bringing to fruition what I imagine was Harry Pulliam's worst nightmare, the replayed game between the Cubs and Giants. Again, before we get to everything that happened on October 8th, it's important to understand that by the summer of 1908, the game of baseball had captured the hearts of Americans all over the country. In cities all over America, if they couldn't get to the stadium or if their favorite team was playing on the road, people would gather to watch electronic scoreboards. Both Stu Thornley and Floyd Sullivan explain. And as they got the telegraph report, somebody would be putting up the results or putting up uh, on, on the scoreboard if a run had scored. And that drew a big crowd too, to be able to watch that. So. Part of it is just shows the intense interest that there was in baseball at that time. Many cities that were contending, the newspapers or the teams would put up these electronic game boards that showed the progress of the game as it was happening. They had little lights and stuff that denoted the runners and the fielders and all this kind of stuff. And there would be guys with these big megaphones and they would stand there and announce the game. And there'd be these huge crowds in front of newspaper buildings, in front of... Uh, well, in front of the um, 
National League headquarters, which was also the Giants headquarters at the time. The interest among Americans in the game of baseball that summer became so intense that famous songwriter and performer Jack Northworth, a man who never even saw a professional baseball game until 1940, penned the song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. In a way, William's dream was being realized. Baseball was quickly becoming America's sport. And for the first time in the history of the game, the pennant would come down to one game. A showdown game, if you will. So when the Cubs and Giants met at the Polo Grounds on October 8th, it was against the backdrop of a controversial call, a pennant race like no other before it, and a growing interest in the game of baseball. Still, few people could have predicted just how out of control everything would get. That's after the break. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, then you can maybe guess what I'm about to ask you to do. That's right. If you're enjoying the show, I hope you'll take a few seconds to rate and review Obscure Ball on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a reason why so many podcasters make this request. Doing so will help other people find Obscure Ball, which in turn will make it easier for me to keep bringing you more content. If you're not enjoying the episode, well, thanks for sticking with me anyway. Now, back to the show. Gloom descends once more. People begin to get quarrelsome. They would just love a disputed decision to fight about. There being none, some of them fight anyhow. There's a beautiful row over at the right field bleachers. A fat cop climbs the rail and nips it in the bud. Meanwhile, no one can hit three-fingered brown. With three feeble attempts to do so, the last hope expires. The Cubs, now champions, gallop joyfully around the field. That one sad third inning did it all. The New York Sun, October 9th, 1908. At 2.30 on the afternoon of October 7th, the Cubs, their coaches, team ownership, and a handful of reporters boarded a state-of-the-art train called the 20th Century. A massive crowd gathered to give them a hero send-off for their 790-mile journey to the Big Apple. They arrived in New York at 10 a.m. on October 8th to a much different reception. The fans of New York, still angry about the September 23rd game, convinced they had been cheated out of a pennant due to a technicality, found out where they were staying and surrounded their hotel, honking horns and making as much noise as possible to ensure no one on the Cubs could get any rest before their 2.30 p.m. game later that day. Giants owner, John T. Brush, figured there'd be trouble, so he arranged for some 300 police officers to be stationed around the polo grounds to try and keep the peace. Ever the savvy businessman, he also wanted to prevent scalpers from taking advantage of the situation, so he sold no advance tickets. The box office opened at 11 a.m., and it was first come, first serve. Everyone showed up. A city of 4 million people just decided to play hooky that day. People skipped school and work to get to this game, and by noon, tickets were sold out. Scalpers still managed to weasel some tickets anyway, and a group of people who were duped by one of these scalpers beat the guy up. One of many brawls that broke out. Hundreds of people would be escorted out of the stadium and taken to the 153rd Street Police Station. More than a dozen ambulances were dispatched to the scene. About half an hour before a first pitch, the situation had deteriorated even more. While fans who bought tickets or were somehow able to sneak in commandeered nearly every inch of stadium seating, those unable to gain entry became desperate and some set fire to a section of fence in right center field. The fire department, unable to quickly put out the fire, dispersed the fans by hosing them down. By some estimations, around 250,000 people showed up to a stadium that seated maybe 40,000. Nearly every surface within sight of the polo grounds was occupied. Rooftops, viaducts, balconies, and a hill known as Coogan's Bluff were filled to the brim with fans. The train that ran along the 155th Street elevated tracks was blocked by people who had managed to climb on top. It's even been rumored that Charles Phelps Taft the older brother of William Howard Taft, 
The man who would run for and win the presidency that same year crawled under the stadium bleachers in order to sneak into the game. Oddly enough, he'd purchased the Cubs in 1914 from Charles Murphy. Jane Mathewson, the wife of Giants starting pitcher Christy Mathewson, was carrying her small child and was nearly trampled to death just trying to get in. Another spectator at the polo grounds that day was an off-duty firefighter named Harry T. McBride. He'd managed to climb up on some elevated train tracks just to get a better view of the game. He fell off and died. Unsympathetic fans just moved his body aside and someone else took his spot. Inside the stadium, on the field, the atmosphere was also pretty tense. First of all, the Cubs had to sneak into the stadium in disguises for fear of being mobbed by angry New York fans who had been sending them death threats. When they did take the field, it was to a chorus of boos and insults that pitcher three-finger Mordecai Brown later described. I never heard anybody or any set of men called as many foul names as the Giants fans called us that day from the time we showed up till it was over. The Giants, meanwhile, are welcomed with thunderous applause. As manager John McGraw and each of his players emerged from the center field entrance, the stadium erupted with cheers. The lone exception being Fred Merkel. He was given the silent treatment. Merkel had the support of his manager and teammates, but the press and the New York fans had been ruthless. Like I said earlier, he'd been given the nickname Bonehead and Ivory Pate. Reportedly, he'd lost weight in the two weeks since the incident. And his on-field performance had been slipping too. He went 1-for-8 in the games that followed September 23rd. The Giants opted to start usual first baseman Fred Tinney that day. Because of all the chaos, Brush opted to move the game up 15 minutes earlier, which cut the Cubs' batting practice short from 20 minutes to 5. So the Giants began taking fielding practice with Joe McGinnity hitting grounders. But the Cubs, who were still taking batting practice at the time, refused to cede the playing field. This pitted McGinnity and Cubs manager Frank Chance against one another. Now, what you need to know about both of these guys is they were both pretty quick-tempered, and both thought nothing of fighting another person. The benches cleared, and had things escalated any more at this point, it's likely there would have been no baseball game at all that day. It's easy to imagine a full-scale riot breaking out, but the players intervened and prevented an actual fight from breaking out. And now we know that Chance had actually instructed his players to try and bait the New York players into fighting in hopes of getting some of them ejected. It didn't work. And yet, before the first pitch was even thrown, there was another very serious crisis brewing. Umpires Bill Clem and Jimmy Johnstone were assigned to the October 8th game, the thinking probably being that it was too controversial to have Hank O'Day calling it. However, Clem found himself in the middle of controversy. Before the game, he alerted the league office that someone had attempted to bribe him to call the game in favor of the Giants. Unable to do anything about it at the time, and not being able to find a replacement on short notice, League Secretary John Hadler took down a statement from Clem and Johnstone, who confirmed the accusation, and told the umpires he trusted them to call the game fairly. To their credit, they did. For everything that happened leading up to it, the game itself was unremarkable, which is kind of surprising, because these two teams matched up well on paper. Here's David again winning streak losing streak runs scored the most runs scored in a game most runs allowed in a game longest game by innings which is interesting uh cubs had it went a 17 inning game and giants had a 16 inning game uh, the biggest lead they had in the division was four and four and a half games respectively um and most games behind in the season were six and six and a half games so, I mean, if you look at the season, these two teams were battling it out in the National League the whole the whole year. If you jump back to winning streak, the Cubs had nine and the Giants had 11. Losing streak was five and four. Season-wise, I mean, it was a pretty interesting season between the two teams. None of these numbers are, you know, crazy. I mean, 17 in game, you don't really see a lot of those. And they don't necessarily tell the story. But it could explain some of why tensions were so high and why having known a little known, you know, rule can make a huge difference. 
For the Giants, future Hall of Famer Matthewson was starting on the mound. The right-hander was vying for his 38th win, a stat that should blow everyone's mind. For the Cubs, Jack Feister got the nod. Feister had been battling fatigue and an injured throwing arm for some time, and it showed. He hit leadoff man Fred Tinney, who later scored two batters later when Turkey Mike Donlin doubled him home. 1-0 New York. The crowd is going wild. Feister was eventually replaced by Brown. His actual name was Mordecai Peter Centennial Brown, but after a farming accident took two of his fingers, he was called Mordecai Three Finger Brown, which is one of baseball's cooler nicknames. He got the job done. He held the Giants to just one run for the rest of the game. Matthewson also pitched well, well, aside from the top of the third inning. The Cubs peppered him for four runs in that frame. It was the only runs he allowed all game, but the damage was done. He too was worn out from a long season, in which he played 56 games, making 44 starts, and by that point had little left in the tank. He later expressed surprise at how long it took the Cubs to score on him. The Giants managed just one more run. It was in the bottom of the 7th. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Brown wasted no time retiring the side, and everyone knew before the inning began that it was over. When the final out was made, fans again rushed onto the field, this time not to celebrate a supposed win, but to mourn a loss. Or to put it less delicately, to attack the Cubs. The Cubs can't even celebrate their pennant victory. They've got to get off the field. One incident reported in the New York Sun claims that a fan sucker-punched Frank Chance as he made his way to the clubhouse. Other accounts chronicle an effort by fans to break into the Cubs' clubhouse, who had to be fended off by the cops. Ultimately, some kind of order was restored. And the New York Sun also reported that many fans expressed sportsmanship afterwards, even going so far as to congratulate the Cubs on winning the game fair and square, as one put it. For all the drama in both leagues, the World Series was a rather tame affair. The Cubs, having won it the previous two years, dismantled the Tigers in five games. Despite having the best player in baseball, Ty Cobb, the Tigers couldn't even manage a single run in the final two games, and Chicago cruised to their third consecutive World Series, the last one they'd win for more than a century. After that, for the most part, life moved on. Fred Merkel, the player so maligned by the media and booed by his own fans, actually went on to have a professional career that spanned nearly two decades, even signing with the Cubs in 1917. To this day, there's a bar across from Wrigley Stadium named after him. As far as his legacy in all of this, baseball historians are far kinder to him than contemporary writers were. He did what he had seen everybody on both teams do his whole life which is when there's a winning hit in the bottom of the last inning and the run scores to win the game, everybody takes it for granted that the game's over. You don't need to run out, you know, your, your hit. You don't need to run to second base or whatever. And if John McGraw had been doing his job and the same situation came up on September 23rd, just a couple of weeks later, why, in heaven's name, he did not tell this 19-year-old to complete the play by running to second base and touching second base. Why he did not do that. To me, that's that's fundamental coaching. You tell your, your this is what happened in Pittsburgh, and this is how the league ruled. If it happens again here, they're not going to count the run. It's as simple as that. And it was the same umpire. It was O'Day both times. So to not, not have this kid ready to run out the play and touch second base, to me, is the real crime of that game. Hank O'Day, oddly enough, was hired by the Cubs to be their manager, replacing none other than Johnny Evers, who by that time was a player manager before being traded to the Cincinnati Reds. Posthumously, O'Day was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2013, having been a player, umpire, and manager. Evers, Brown, Matthewson, Tinker, all went on to be Hall of Famers as well. In a way, this crazy story almost ended happily ever after. Almost. There's still one chapter to this bizarre tale. 
the fate of Harry Pulliam was not a happy ending. Harry C. Pulliam, president of the National League, attempted suicide at about 9.30 last night in his room at the New York Athletic Club. He shot himself through the head, and late last night, it was said he would not recover. The New York Times, July 29, 1909. As 1908 came to an end, and 1909 began, there was still one very troubling word on the mind of Harry Pulliam. Bribery. The attempted bribe of umpire Bill Clem was the very type of thing he had promised to root out of professional baseball. Perhaps the confusion of October 8, 1908 superseded this attempted bribe. But once the dust settled on all of that, a much more clear picture of what happened came into focus. We know now that the man who attempted to pay off Clem was Dr. Joseph Kramer, the team physician for the Giants. That happened. That's a fact. Kramer found Clem under the bleachers before the game and offered to pay him $2,500, or $80,000 today, if he'd call the game in New York's favor. We also know that Clem did the honorable thing and refused and reported the incident to league officials. Kramer allegedly told him, you know who's behind me and needn't be afraid of anything. He also promised him a job for life and name-dropped a well-known politician. That information is based on a written affidavit from Clem himself, saved in the league archives. What's less clear is why an otherwise straight-laced doctor, who's known to have started various charities and clinics, risked his entire reputation just to bribe an umpire. It's very likely that Kramer did this at the behest of someone else and was later made a scapegoat. Floyd's one of the few writers who has looked deeper into this, and he thinks there's a political connection. My feeling is that it all goes back to Tammany. Tammany was involved in gambling. The two guys who, who uh, ended up owning the Highlanders, who later became the Yankees, were connected to Tammany. It was, it was rife. Tammany Hall, of course, was a sophisticated political machine that ran every aspect of New York City life in the late 19th and early 20th century. They likely would have been involved in sports betting and pool hall gambling as well. And it's a known fact that Giants manager John McGraw owned several pool halls in the city. And at that time, Tammany ran a protection scheme. You know, it was typical uh, mob stuff where, okay, you have to pay us off, otherwise you can't open a pool hall. So he had to basically subscribe to Tammany protection in order to open that pool hall. And he was connected with Pimlico in Baltimore back when he was on the Baltimore Orioles and all kinds of stuff. It, it, uh, gambling and connection to Tammany Hall in particular was rampant. Beyond that, it's also known that Kramer was a personal friend of McGraw. None of this was lost on Harry Pulliam. To get to the bottom of the matter, Pulliam commissioned an investigation. But somehow the committee tasked with solving the crime was chaired by John Brush. You know, the owner of the Giants. Some people might call that a conflict of interest. Unsurprisingly, the committee's findings were vague and did no damage to the team's reputation. They concluded only that someone tried to give Clem money to call close plays in favor of the Giants. It didn't reveal who the perpetrator was. It would be another several months, April of 1909, before the public knew anything about the bribe attempt. And that's only because sports writer Harvey Woodruff broke the story for the Chicago Tribune. He named Kramer as the culprit, but was still unable to draw a connection between Kramer and anyone else from the Giants. For his part, Kramer was banned from baseball, and that was the end of that. Now Chicago, they had their own ethical dilemma. On top of the bribe attempt, the league was also looking into allegations that the Cubs were running a ticket scalping scheme. In essence, Team ownership was buying tickets to their own games and then turning around and selling them to scalpers, ensuring that every game would be sold out. An unintended consequence was that the scalpers were asking for way too much money, and the Westside Stadium in Chicago was half empty for much of the 1908 World Series. Pulliam hated this. It conflicted with his belief that baseball was a game that belonged to everyone, not just the rich, and it also might have been illegal. The league officially reprimanded the Cubs and team owner Charles Murphy, 
saying that they are deserving of the severest criticisms and censure for their handling of ticket sales, and vowed to hold them responsible. Already miffed about the ruling on the Merkel game, Murphy was reportedly furious at the league, specifically at Pulliam himself. Rich, powerful men like John T. Brush and Charles Murphy were perhaps for the first time in their lives coming up against someone willing to hold them accountable. From their view, Pulliam was affecting their bottom line, and they absolutely did not like that. They lobbied for him to be fired and made it known they would not vote to renew his contract. There's also some reason to believe that they were planning something even more sinister. Now, we don't know this for a fact, but Floyd Sullivan has maintained for some time now that he believes Pulliam's sexuality played a factor in his downfall. In Floyd's novel, he describes a fictitious scenario where Brush and McGraw hired private investigators to spy on him and ultimately threatened to expose him if he planned on ruling against them in any way. Again, that's a piece of fiction, but not a far-fetched piece of fiction. It was fairly common practice in those days for team owners to hire private investigators for various reasons. In some cases, they'd hire provocateurs that would entice players for opposing teams when they came to town to go out drinking late at night so that they'd be tired and hungover for the next day's game. Christy Mathewson, who was famously straight-laced, had one oddly specific weakness, gambling at checkers. People knew this, and on at least one occasion when the Giants went to Chicago, Murphy hired a private eye to coax him into playing checkers all night when he was scheduled to pitch against the Cubs the next day. Team owners even hired people to keep an eye on their own players. I detailed such an effort on this podcast in the episode about Ray Chapman. The Gary Herman Papers, a collection of documents from Cincinnati Reds owner Gary Herman, shed even more light on this type of behavior. He was known to employ Pinkerton agents to spy on many different people around baseball, including his own players. Herman was also one of Pulliam's early detractors and was one of four league owners who planned to vote against renewing his contract. And if something as duplicit as blackmail seems low for people like Brush and McGraw, think about this. McGraw is rumored to have once paid homage to a site where a black man was lynched by a racist mob. Legend has it, he kept a piece of the rope and referred to it as his lucky rabbit foot. Brush is suspected of burning down the polo grounds in 1911 to collect the insurance money that bankrolled the construction of a new stadium in the same spot. These weren't virtuous men that Pulliam had made enemies of. They were ruthless. They won a lot of baseball games, and they won them at all costs. So it's not the craziest theory in the world. Whatever was actually going on behind the scenes, as well in the public arena, it took a toll on Pulliam. Earlier in his career, the press went out of their way to describe his impeccable appearance, noting that all colors of the rainbow were used in his outfits. But in photos between 1908 and 09, he looked disheveled and distraught. For a man already known to have suffered from depression to now be under such public scrutiny, it was having an effect on him. In a series of league meetings in the winter of 1909, Pulliam suffered a nervous breakdown. There are multiple accounts of his breakdown in the newspapers. The league owners and officials had gathered in Chicago for the winter meetings, an annual event to discuss a wide array of baseball issues. One item on the agenda was whether or not to rehire Pulliam. Reports at the time indicate that they were split 4-4, four to four, and as if things weren't already tense enough, Murphy now playing the role of full-on villain, began leaking league secrets to the press just to embarrass the league. Namely, that Pulliam and his longtime friend Barney Dreyfus, the owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, had had some sort of falling out. Pulliam was furious. This set up a very different kind of showdown. This time, one that pitted the league president against the league owners. In a fiery speech, Pulliam berated them my days as a baseball man are numbered, he shouted. The National League doesn't want me for president anymore. It longs to go back to the days of being bottom of the pack, hiding the cards under the table, and to the days when trademark was the gumshoe. Strong words. Things only got more bizarre from there. On February 19th, a day after his dramatic speech, Pulliam randomly announced to the press that he planned to be married in St. Louis. The bride-to-be was never named, 
and the only person that he's thought to have been romantic with was a guy named Mr. Russell, someone described in the press as a Louisville intimate. It's also known that Mr. Russell visited Pulliam in Chicago at the behest of some of his remaining friends among league owners and officials. This is a very confusing piece of history. But thinking back to what Floyd said and comparing Pulliam to Tchaikovsky, the latter of whom married a woman just to hide his sexuality, there's one theory that kind of makes sense. He must have really believed that his detractors would use his sexuality against him. So the marriage announcement was just a ruse. No one was buying it. In fact, a few of the owners decided to intervene. That very same day, he took a cab to the train station, presumably to head off to St. Louis. George Dovey, the owner of the Boston Doves and one of his remaining allies, disguised himself as a cab driver, commandeered Pulliam's cab, and took him in the opposite direction of the train station. Once he realized what was happening, Pulliam bolted out of the horse-drawn carriage and ran to the station, just leaving his baggage and his coat behind. That happened. It was a real event that was recorded in multiple newspapers in Chicago. At, at that point, they were probably more trying to protect him than anything. They knew, even though he claimed that he was going there to be married, they knew that there was no such engagement. They knew he had probably no plans to have a honeymoon in Honolulu. He was breaking down very severely, and they thought he needed help. And the last thing he needed to do was travel to St. Louis and pretend to get married. After his spectacular escape, Pulliam made it to St. Louis, but never got married. By February 21st, according to multiple reports in the news, he was in Cincinnati, resting in a care facility. The Baltimore Sun, for instance, reported that he arrived in St. Louis without any baggage, but was followed there by his brother and another friend, and was convinced to go to Cincinnati. Soon after that, he was granted a leave of absence by the league. That same day, February 21st, the Chicago Examiner reported that he was at the St. Nicholas Hotel in Cincinnati being tended to by physicians. As the paper put it, he was nearing a state of collapse. From there, he is known to have gone to Nashville and stayed at his family estate for some time. But before leaving Cincinnati, he told the Examiner, There are two things that cannot be done to me. I cannot be forced to resign my position as head of the National League, and I cannot be forced into a newspaper marriage. So the marriage thing? was just made up. After some time off, Pulliam eventually returned to his post as president of the National League, but his condition worsened throughout the 1909 season. He spoke often of suicide, telling those closest to him that he saw himself as unfit to live and that it was a sin for him to stick around in such a condition. He was serious about it. On July 28, 1909, alone in his room at the New York Athletic Club, the most brilliant baseball executive of his time shot himself in the head. He lingered for hours afterwards, but doctors who tried to treat him said he couldn't be saved. He died the next day at 39 years old. At his funeral, every team in both the American and National League sent a representative, with the lone exception of the New York Giants. Harry Pulliam was probably the chief proponent of standardizing the game, making it a, an athletic contest that followed the rules, that didn't put up with the rowdiness of the players, the drunkenness, the gambling, tried to legitimize it as an entertainment that reflected American society as he saw it, which was a civilized society, a society of hard work, but also an appreciation for the finer things in life. And uh, that, that to me was his greatest contribution. But he, you know, in, in terms of just fundamentals, he was one of the uh, first proponents of legit legitimizing the American League and joining the two leagues, in, in essence, with the national agreement. He was, he was adamant in uh, trying to make this a national game uh, expanding its reach and, and, and legitimizing it. And I think he did that. And the fact that uh, he always supported his umpires, would he never overruled his umpires. He believed in the rules of the game. And the enforcement of Rule 59 in the Merkel play is, uh, is a case in point, probably the most dramatic case in point. 
in the history of the game. Obscure Ball is presented by Small League Productions. Each episode is written, narrated, edited, and produced by me. Additional research for this episode was provided by David Gunn, and Olivia Carteau narrated the newspaper clippings. For more information on how Small League Productions can help you create a handcrafted podcast, visit smallleaguestude.com. Music for this episode and all previous episodes are courtesy of Storyblocks. A special thanks to Stu Thornley and Floyd Sullivan for their contributions to this episode. And be sure to subscribe to Obscure Ball on your podcast app of choice so you'll get alerts when new episodes are released, which is occasionally. <laughs>